Hi, everyone. How's everybody doing this afternoon, almost afternoon? I am really excited to be here. I grew up in the ethical culture movement. It is near and dear to my heart. Actually, at one of the FEST conferences in St. Louis, a bunch of us got matching ethical culture logo tattoos. So we are clearly very diehard, still have it. My parents were like, oh, why? But, you know, <laughs> there are worse things. Um, so I'm really excited to be here. Thanks, Perry, for the introduction. And I also want to thank my husband. Um, you, he came up here and gave a little bit of an intro. And when it comes with mental illness, it's not just the individual who really struggles and is diagnosed. It's the family. And that can make your illness better or worse, depending on the level of involvement people have. And so for me, my bipolar is something that I'm more successful at managing because I have a very strong support system, and I'm very lucky in that regard. And the saying that I think we're all familiar with is, it takes a village, and all good villages have psychiatrists, <laughs> I believe is how that goes, um, which is something that I live by. So I, I think that's important. And I'm here to talk about not just bipolar disorder, but really who I am as a person. And like Perry so kindly introduced me, um, my name is Rachel Callum-Whitman, and I grew up with, grew up attending Noves, and I now live in Pittsburgh. I have 31 tattoos, including our little ethical culture guy. I earned my doctorate in disability studies and education. I'm an Aquarius. My passions include writing, eating cheese, and talking about sloths. See me after if you want to talk about cheese and or sloths. I can draw with my feet, and I have bipolar disorder. So typically, when I introduce myself, which of these identifiers do you think I leave out? So this is just shout it out. <laughs> bipolar. Okay, the people at the 930, they were like, writing with your feet. I was like, of course I'm going to tell people I write with my feet. That's amazing. <laughs> Come on, 930, wake up. So it is bipolar disorder. So bipolar disorder is a big part of my life, sometimes in a good way, sometimes in a bad way. When I was first diagnosed, it was really, really challenging to admit and accept the label because to me, having bipolar, being crazy, was really, really negative. For example, my guidance school counselor, when she found out about the diagnosis that I finally got when I was 17 years old, she called me into her office and told me that I should probably rethink my college plans. And I was a 4.0 student. I had extracurriculars. The only thing that had changed was now I had a diagnosis. And luckily, my parents were just like, get out of here. We don't want you staying in our house anymore. Get on that bus. Go to college. So I was able to kind of forge my own path in that way. But the fact that that diagnostic label shifted my guidance counselor's mind so significantly, that's not that uncommon. This kind of thing can happen. And so for me, growing up with bipolar disorder really took me finding my own voice and figuring out who I am, not as someone who is ill, but as a person who can own this illness. Part of my journey has been writing um, and keeping a blog. And I've written since I was 15 years old, and I first started experiencing symptoms of bipolar. But in the past couple years, I've started blogging about them and sharing my narrative. And I'm going to share parts of it with you today, because that's how I find my zest, by being my authentic self. 
Um, a trigger warning that I just wanted to put out there. I do talk about suicide, self-harm, and I drop the F-bomb a lot, but it's artistic, so it's not gratuitous cussing. It's very artistic. And I wanted to include these photos just because this kind of, I've always been this quirky individual, and this is actually during a class in my doc program. I got bored, so I just went, went full uh, dress up there. So. I, I'm really excited to be here and to share this with you. Middle school was hard. Talking windows made it crazy. Nobody understands the window like me. The first time I was legitimately crazy in public was in my friend's finished basement. We were sitting in her mom's office on the worn carpet, looking up at a tiny screen window that was steadily breathing. They were smoking and I was chattering. My mind was rattling, but not from adolescent giddiness or a feeble contact high, just from being crazy. I was in middle school and I knew how I felt wasn't right. It wasn't okay to be this way, but at least I, it had always been contained before. My loud mind was kept quiet in the silence of my own bedroom. Before, whenever I felt this lost, I would be anchored in my house, and even though my thoughts drifted and shook my skull, I was a well-kept secret on the second floor in the right corner bedroom. I would sit in my own room, somewhat comforted by my own strange security measures, in an average-sized suburban middle schooler room flanked by books and stuffed animals. A room complete with a closet crammed with neon clothing, early 90s neon was in, a perpetually disheveled trundle bed, and everything, including me, encircled by a strong, firm wall coated with a healthy layer of light blue paint and dotted with leftover elementary school stickers of stars. And I would, feel, I would feel weird and alone and scared and like I was being watched. And I would do odd things that didn't make sense, but I felt compelled to do them anyway, over and over and over again. Like writing poems that at first sounded logical and complete, but after reading them a few days later left me feeling embarrassed or crying. Crying about colors that felt too sharp and unleashed bristled sensations in my scalp that didn't belong behind my tangled bangs, or cutting into parts of my pink skin with phantom fingers, clutching very real scissors, just begging my brain to bring me back into my body, something only pain and blood could do apparently, but at least I was inside. But this time I sat encircled by friends next to an old wooden desk, head resting on a broken printer, smelling smoke and hearing laughter, and I looked out that window and it breathed and heaved and I felt my skin turn into hot sandpaper and my mouth felt empty under my tongue. My words fell to the floor and ricocheted around the room and they skidded across the old beige carpet because they were light and hollow and I was an intruder who didn't belong. Nothing stuck. The window looked at me and sighed and furrowed and I... I knew it wasn't alive, but I understood what she was saying to a crazy outsider like me as she told me to leave. I didn't hear words exactly, but I knew that it was true, and the window caught all our light and filtered the cheap air and pulled out our smoke, and she looked down upon me with a glint and a glimmer and a gust that said, everyone watches you. That was the first time I was crazy around people, when my madness first started to show, 
But who knows if they knew or even noticed. They were high, and I was staring at a basement window, whispering silently into a tattered screen, pleading with it not to reveal who I really was. And they all thought I must be really fucking stoned, but I was really fucking crazy. And the window saw it all as she winked down at me and sifted through my secrets, but promised not to tell if I didn't. I needed to keep my crazy quiet and hold it hostage inside my brain in a body that drifted and came back with cuts that were reserved for places covered by neon clothing. Lock that craziness in your room on the second story of the house you grew up in, the one that on the street where you felt so many feelings. The window said, I'll keep your secret if you keep hiding, and I felt thankful in my charade. This contract made me feel safe and unseen, and I winked and said loudly, nobody understands the window like me. And my friends all laughed because they thought I was stone, and I infuriatingly flushed embarrassing shades of red because my secret had escaped me so easily all at once. Sick and beautiful. The sun sits cradled in my skull, sparkling between two crisp, clean, light-filled eyes. It warms the bridge of my nose and pushes white light through my nostrils. I can breathe in the shimmering scent of space. My face is soft and open, fleshy mesh that allows the light to pass in and out through my pale pink skin. My freckles transform into pockets of glowing starlight. My radiant eyes are blossoming portals, kindled from my own lavish sun, bridging my being to wherever the light still reaches. My sun settles warmly, toasting the corners of my mind. My ideas bask in this celestial glow. They ripen as my sun continues to twinkle. These cognitions come out clear and golden and a bit too hot to touch for anyone except me. I can grab each sinewy idea, each delicate strand of genius, and even though it melts away my fingerprints, I don't mind. Surrounded by a wispy galaxy crafted from my own consciousness, with stars and planets I've brought to life, with orbits I keep edging into cosmic motion, I twirl my light into the blackness of nothing that weighs heavy on the edges of time, waiting to overpower the brightness. I tirelessly stir the sky. I weave my own stars and my own thoughts tightly into the fabric of blackness that haunts the end of the universe. And even though it dulls my own brilliance, the dispersal of my light into the void makes it smolder with a promising light of stubborn embers. The fire of hope sparks softly. And while I no longer shine as brightly, at least we can see farther into the night. Instability in six colors. When I'm manic, the world feels so unbelievably beautiful and shattered. And there is just such sobering, overpowering ecstasy in this all-cracked brokenness that I can't help but feel it throbbing in my bones. The sadness settles in the cradle of my heart as I'm the only one charged with saving this beautiful, broken, melancholic bundle that leaves scorch marks in my chest. I cannot sleep because I have to stand guard all night. I am the lonely, lovely, littered watchtower. I smile and I cry and I collapse and I laugh myself back into beautiful space. I am bursting with bright colors and sweet agony. I am brilliant and tortured. I'm too bright to burn out. It feels like a hypnotic ultraviolet jellyfish has curled inside me. 
I'm warmed and distracted with its beautiful electricity as she wraps her stinging fingers around my soft lungs and a heart that is eager to feel a jolt that brings me back to life. I can smell the singed skin. On nights like these, I turn off all the lights and watch two videos from my childhood. The Snowman is a short video based off a book written by a man whose wife had schizophrenia, a crazy girl just like me. But the video has no words, just pencil-drawn landscapes, skies, and the rolling ocean. It stars a little boy who builds a snowman, loves him into life, and then loses him to the sun. There is one song sung by a choir boy who, growing up, I thought was a girl just like me. And the lyrics that are seared forever in my mind cry to me. We're walking in the air. We're floating in the moonlit sky. The people far below are sleeping as we fly. I'm holding very tight. I'm riding in the midnight blue. I'm finding I can fly so high above with you. And I can't stop watching this video, and I can't stop crying over the sheer splendor of this story, loving and losing and escaping into the sky as people rest peacefully beneath you. And I cry so hard with such indulgence that my chest aches. This is my story, too. Little me learned that sometimes sadness can bring immeasurable beauty with its sorrow. I watch a scene from Dumbo again and again and again because I cry so hard I think I feel God. His mother is locked up, shackles on her feet, but she weaves her trunk through prison bars and cradles her son. The bittersweet lullaby plays as she rocks Dumbo. Baby mine, don't you cry. Baby mine, dry your eyes. Rest your head close to my heart, never to part, baby of mine. And I cry with my entire body. And it feels so sumptuously beautiful that I start to die. I stare at the screen and wipe the tears from my neck, and I clasp my hands as my head pounds with violent angel wings. May God break my heart so completely that the whole world falls in. From the lips of Mother Teresa's passed on to mine to echo in God's ear. All this rapture rips me right open. I just can't keep the kaleidoscope in. And I find markers and pens, and I decorate my pale arms and soft stomach, my freckled face and long legs, and my pink chest that is absolutely pleading. I'm covered in colors. I turn into canvas. I listen to sad lullabies, and I think of this rickety world. And I'm honored to hold such euphoria, since I'm simply a crazy girl lost in divine light even though the splendor makes me suffer. I cry until the markers run, leaving diluted tentacles etched across my skin, and I sit on my kitchen floor feeling blessed with my burden. This grief makes me whole. It feels familiar in a way I deserve. I sit and the tears pour out and I pull my knees to my chest because I'm exquisitely splintered and responsible for the entire world's torment. And I would sit and cry and make my colors run forever, but my husband says it's time to see the doctor. Aggressive deprivation. Depression is aggressive deprivation. It steals the love from your heart and the light from your eyes. You lose yourself to nothingness. It robs you of your joy, of sincere smiles, of laughing out loud. Depression takes away your friends, your will to live. It hurts your family, and it tells you that you will always be broken. 
But depression also buries you, destroying you by lacing throbbing aches through your too tight joints, by force-feeding you a congealed lump of disappointment, bile, and self-disgust that clogs your stomach, by lodging a stabbing headache between the red-rimmed eyes that haven't slept nearly enough. Depression rips taste from your tongue and rubs your skin raw, leaving it tender to the touch. Even hugs hurt so much that your body shakes and threatens to cave in as someone moves lovingly around you. Depression makes me forget who I am. It steals me from myself. It tells me I will feel like this forever. Depression is an illness that does everything in its power to deprive you of a life worth living. Depression does its best to drown you in inconsolable disease. It is a dangerously persuasive sickness. But no matter how long it empties words from my mouth, smothers my spark, and tells me everything would be better if I just stopped existing, I'd like to believe I will always, always have enough hope to keep going. I thought I was done. I thought I was done hallucinating. I was getting back on track. I saw my psychiatrist three days ago, and he told me that our next plan was to titrate off some of my meds. I'm just on so many right now. And the doses, well, for a long time, it felt like sky's the limit. I'm drowning under, take 1,200 milligrams at bedtime, times a few. I need them to stay sane, but sometimes I can't help but wonder what these medications will ultimately do to my body over time. Some of them just haven't been around long enough, used to treat mental illness long enough to see effects over time. Yeah, my priority is sanity, but sometimes I worry my insides are rotting. But yeah, so the plan was to slow down on the Seroquel, cut back on the Clonopin, rely on Risperdal less and less, get back to baseline. Not normal, I've never been normal, but back to my baseline. The least crazy I can possibly be. Whatever that looks like, I'm honestly having a hard time remembering. But I woke up this morning humming to the paint above my bed, sighing as I slowly started waking up, like I do every morning. But as my eyelids slid open, that fucking spider skittered across the ceiling and down the wall. I rocketed out of bed like the sheets were on fire and flicked on the light switch with urgent shaking fingers. My husband was breathing steady and waking up wordlessly, like he does every morning, and he was startled not by spiders, but rather by my early morning speed. Usually I'm a medication hungover puddle. But this time I squeaked shakily about spiders and thrust his glasses into his hands so he could look for himself. There, look, do you see it? A big blackish grayish spider that had long wispy legs and had scuttled quickly and creepily across the ceiling to the corner where ceiling meets wall and sat there waiting for me, twitching. As my husband, husband tussled his hair and pushed his glasses over the bridge of his nose, I pleaded with the gods of psychosis that it was in fact a real spider, that it was huge and fucking scary and more importantly, real. Undisputably real. Alarmingly real. Terrifyingly real. That my husband would be so scared alongside me because this monster existed outside of my fucked up brain and he saw it with his own sane eyes, I prayed that he would explain, exclaim, Jesus fucking Christ, and leap from the bed and run from the room, waving his hands wildly above his head and hollering and clamoring down the hall, tripping down the steps and racing out the front door where he could pour out into the street looking for safety. 
And I would be right behind him because, dear God, Pittsburgh has never seen an arachnid like this before. I wouldn't have to be scared by myself. But he squinted in the fresh light and peered at the spot where my finger pointed rigidly while my heart bashed violently against my chest. And he said he didn't see anything. He uttered it like a confession, spoke softly between sighs. Nothing but white walls. My soul sank. Hallucinating is not indicative of moral failure. It doesn't make you a bad or dangerous person. It is just a part of illness. It is a symptom that can happen. But throughout my tangled, tortured, complicated relationship with bipolar, I always consoled myself with the fact that I was never that crazy. Yeah, I had crazy ideas sometimes, and I did risky things like driving with my eyes closed, wouldn't recommend it, and not sleeping solidly for weeks. I had my dangerous delusions and suicide attempts. Yeah, I go through periods where I believe that Princess Diana is my guardian angel and that the police, or maybe Jesus, it's always hard to tell, puts a tape recorder in my back right molar. Standard, typical bipolar fanfare. Psychiatrist tested, DSM approved. But when I started hearing the occasional voice and seeing the occasional spider, it now feels like I have been ratcheted up to a whole new extreme plane of craziness. Hearing and seeing shit is fucking crazy, undeniably the hallmark of madness. I didn't think I'd ever be this crazy. I didn't think I'd ever be this crazy. But I've been crazy all along. I've been crazy for so long. I still nurture this ridiculous idea, a lunatic's pipe dream, that my bipolar will get better. I know it's a long shot, but part of my heart has always promised me that my brain will eventually mellow out and my mind will grow to be less and less unpredictable, quiet and less cruel, kinder and less crazy. I still harbor the secret wish that I'll grow out of my mental illness. I'll get over it like so many people have told me. Like I've begged and begged to no one in particular since I was 15 years old and I knew I was crazy as hell. Or maybe they'll find a cure? I can't really say that without chuckling because finding the cure for bipolar is on nobody's to-do list. We will continue to be crazy and forgotten until we die. I try to make myself understand that to some extent bipolar will always be in my life. I think most bipolars go through phases of craving quiet and praying for a calm existence, wishing that we could live life with a brain that behaved or at least played by the rules most of the time. I thought I was done hallucinating, but here I am. I need to keep trying. I can't forget to hope. I think tomorrow will be better. I am a good bipolar. I am a good bipolar. I'm a watchful bipolar. I research myself every day. In order to manage mental illness, you need to recognize the triggers and the tells that alert you to the fact that you're not so slowly inching away from sanity. As those with mental illness know, there are some actions that universally signal that we're, mo we're moments away from sinking into nothingness or setting ourselves on fire. Not sleeping, sleeping too much. Not eating, eating too much. Never leaving your house, going out all night, every night. 
all the drugs, all the drinking, all the money spent on all the dumbest things, making bad decisions, or doing nothing at all. These can be easier to spot. But in addition to that, we all have little things, little bizarre behaviors and skewed logic, little inklings unique to us that whisper and wail to the rest of the world that we're starting to slip sideways into being fucked up. They all start out so infuriatingly under the radar, cloaked in self-sabotage, designed to go unnoticed, fatally subtle. Mental illness is an abusive dark shadow. Think Eeyore with unrelenting lightning bolts and fist-sized bullets of hail and thunder telling you to fuck off. You need to constantly be on the lookout for all of these little idiosyncratic signs that tell you you're starting to lose it. Anyway, to be a good bipolar, you need to understand your illness yourself and take a lot of notes. Here goes it. For me, depression is listening to an instrumental version of the Pixies' Where Is My Mind on repeat. It's feeling fat. It's not eating. It's realizing I'm a failure at everything I do. Realizing that no one truly likes me and I'm full of mistakes, some that already happened and so many more yet to be made. I second guess, I trillionth guess, everything I do, I have no patience for anything, anyone, especially not for myself. I have no energy for the catastrophe that is me. I start having panic attacks every day. It feels like I'm losing more and more of my right to breathe. My stomach is full of concrete and my eyes just won't dry. I can't stop tensing my hands so tightly that my rigid, painful fingers make it practically impossible to crack open my pillbox full of Ativan. Depression is crying in the car after I hang out with friends because it physically hurts to keep pretending that I am happy. It's fondly remembering how it felt to self-harm, fantasizing over the release I used to get from pulling blood around the point of a pair of scissors, practically drooling over the phantom pain I could cause, getting lightheaded just remembering how such delectable physical pain freed me from emotional wreckage. When I'm depressed, I look wistfully at the scars on my body because they remind me of a time when I was free to self-injure, when survival meant dissecting my pain all night long, assuming I had the right number of band-aids. But then again, depression is also dreaming of dying, dreaming of letting go and leaving everything and everyone behind, coming to terms with the fact that you will always be a burden. It's your fault. Why are you still here? Stop dreaming already. For me, hypomania and mania are listening to Grimes too loudly too often. She's the musician who invented the genre ADD music. She's a psychedelic alien sprite right up my alley. My desire to hear everything and look at everything and touch everything is insatiable. To others, it looks obsessive, and that's because it is. I want to devour words, noises, colors, laughter. I want to flit around feverishly, and the only thing keeping me paced is the need to rub my hand across brick buildings, smooth countertops, finger fabrics, and caress everything that I deem too tender to pass up. Strong, heightened sensations make me salivate, except I don't need to eat because I am too beautiful for food. When I start to cycle, I always get this sly, knowing smile that slinks sweetly across my face. It's because I figured out the universe and I'm the only one in on the secret. 
but I have a shoddy poker face, so when my husband asks me if I'm too happy, I can try to lie, but he sees how unbelievably sick and happy I am and that I need help. When my mania revs full force, I rock my body and wring my hands. I'm energized and agitated, and I fidget ferociously in a way that is utterly unsatisfying but compulsive. My feet, my, my eyes feel too big for my face, and everything looks louder in both good and bad ways. This time it's different, I always say. This is the real me. My speech is pressured, erratic, loud, confusing, and brilliant. I don't recognize myself. For me, psychosis is being suspicious of my husband's basil plant because it has been looking at me funny all week. I decorate it with office supplies to make it look like a makeshift Christmas tree, like if a mentally unstable Office Depot employee threw an underwhelming low-budget holiday party. <laughs> Christening the plant with a purple paperclip Christmas tree topper, decorating it with rubber band tinsel, and nesting four grapes at the base, at the base to mimic gifts at first made the plant less menacing. But ultimately, it never works out, and I cry to my husband to throw it out, which is a bummer because we both like caprese salads when I'm sane. When I'm psychotic, I don't trust any food that isn't prepackaged. My husband knows that things are amiss when I throw out our economy bulk-sized tub of applesauce and insist on buying individual applesauce cups with tight, tamper-proof seals. The menu of a psychotic leads little to the imagination. Hypergraphia hits me hard. If I don't write down exactly what I was thinking with 100% correctness, it is the end of the world. I get so mad my hair falls out and I can't see straight. I can probably attribute that to the countless times I've leapt out of the shower with no time to find my glasses because I had to write down a paragraph that at the time was my manifesto. But after the antipsychotics kick in is actually just fucking nonsense, which is devastatingly disappointing to not be brilliant after all. Sometimes I just hug my knees to my forehead and cry on the floor or on the bed or on the couch or in the car because I'm stuck in skin that's scratchy, loud, vicious, and I'm equal parts dying to be lost forever and frightened of being alone. Sometimes I hear or see things that aren't there and I wonder if it's the real world or my real craziness. The confusion monopolizes so much of my time. I talk about Princess Diana and Mother Teresa with rave reviews. If these two ladies come up in conversation, my husband knows my meds aren't cutting it, and I am probably on the verge of cutting myself. I've lived with this illness for over 15 years, and I've studied myself intently. I observe my behaviors and analyze my cognitions. I see a therapist and a psychiatrist, and a fundamental component of my marriage is talking about life with bipolar. Over the years, I've gotten so much better at comparing my notes with those of my treatment team, of trying to intervene when things start to blur, being proactive to prevent trashing another innocent basil plant. I'm trying so hard to pay attention to the illness and not pretend that the illness is who I am, the me that I celebrate and the me I despise. But with mental illness, it is so hard to be objective. The illness excels at distracting you and seeping into your skull without you even knowing there was an invasion. So you get sick, but it just seems kind of normal. Insanity is status quo. I'm a good bipolar, but it's challenging to successfully track and catch my crazy. 
I slip up a lot, it seems. It is exhausting to be hypervigilant 24-7, hoping to catch a glimpse of the beginnings of a brush fire. There's just been a lot on my mind lately because I graduate in May and I need to get a job. I also haven't been sleeping much and I'm really, really tired. Today I downloaded another instrumental version of Where Is My Mind that I totally recommend. The melancholic nature of the song is so beautiful, the way it lingers and lays heavily across your shoulders. I forgot to pick up my prescriptions. I am so completely worthless. It will never get better. Why am I even here? I am tired of waking up. Living with mental illness is similar living with any type of struggle. Takes a lot of energy. And if you have help from a partner, from family, from friends, it makes life worth living and it makes it easier. And for me, I would go through, I read my blog posts and I look for the most common words. And the most common words in everything that I write, even the darker stuff, is hope and light. And for me, I think I attribute a lot of that to the tenacity of the human spirit, but also the fact that I have community. I keep a blog, and one time one of, someone messaged me and said, I really appreciate your writing. You know, the most beautiful words in any language are, you are not alone. And that's always stuck with me. And for me, I, you know, being able to share my narrative and my voice to find safe spaces to help challenge stigma has given me purpose. It's given me zest. And so the last thing that I wanted to plug is a social media grassroots campaign I'm starting um, that's certain Pittsburgh, but the idea is to spread it everywhere, which called Project, ooh, Project Obit. And so Project Obit, Project Obituary, takes the fake obituaries of people who are very much alive, but could die without the Affordable Care Act. And the idea is to use these types of stories to contact our legislators, share with our legislators, and show how healthcare is a human right. I know for me, without medication and hope and zest and love, I wouldn't be here today. And so that, for me, this zest gives me advocacy, it gives me love. And one of the closing words that my friends and I always say when we meet doing um, anything advocacy activist related, we say, gotta laugh to keep from crying, gotta advocate to keep from dying. Thank you, everyone.